We're in Acts chapter 21. You can find that in your Bibles, Acts chapter 21. We'll be starting in verse 20, so a little overlap from last week. We'll talk about a couple things we didn't talk about last week. And so we're going to start by reading the passage. So find Acts chapter 21, verse 20, and we'll read it together. It says, when they heard this, they praised God. Okay, the they is the leadership in Jerusalem. Paul came, gave his report, talked about all the things that had gone on in his, his missionary journey. So when they heard this, they praised God. Then they said to Paul, you see, brother, how many thousands of Jews have believed? So this is kind of a, hey, and while you've been gone, look at what's happening here. You've reported all these, all these Gentiles being saved. Well, praise God, thousands of Jews are being saved too. So, so far, so good. And all of them are zealous for the law. This is where we start getting into some questionable territory. We'd like, and we did talk about that last week. Verse 21. They have been informed that you teach all the Jews who live among the Gentiles to turn away from Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or live according to our customs. Now, red flags should be going off here in your mind because from what we know about Paul, what we've read about his teaching, the things he stands for, the things he stands against, you should automatically be saying to yourself, no, no, he did not. Okay, and that's part of the problem. They're, they're making accusations that aren't true. And, but all the people are hearing this, so the question is, what shall we do? They will certainly hear that you have come, so... Do what we tell you. They have a plan. There are four men with us who have made a vow. Uh, take these men, join in their purification rites, and pay their expenses so that they can have their head shaved. Then everyone will know there is no truth in these reports about you, but that you yourself are living in obedience to the law. So basically they say, hey, what we need you to do, Paul, is we need you to, to do some Jewish things with some Jewish people uh, and include the Jewish temple so everyone will know you're still, you're still practicing Jewish things. And so that was their plan to keep Paul out of trouble with these people. Then they talk about the Gentiles, verse 25. As for the Gentile believers, we have written to them our decision that they should abstain from food sacrificed to idols from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. And that's accurate. They had, they had made that decision, I think, in chapter 15, had, had sent that out to the Gentiles. That was, that was all good. Verse 26. The next day, Paul took them in and purified himself along with them. Then he went to the temple and gave notice of the date when the days of purification would end. That was part of the ritual. And the offering would be made for each of them. So Paul went along with what was suggested. Verse 27, this is where we pick up from last week. When the seven days were nearly over, some Jews from the province of Asia saw Paul at the temple. They stirred up the whole crowd and seized him, shouting, Fellow, fellow, fellow Israelites, help us! This is the man who teaches everyone everywhere against our people and our law and this place. So they just picked up the, picked up the anthem that had been been talked about the lie that had been shared it says this is the guy this is the guy we've been hearing about and besides he has brought greeks into the temple and defiled this holy place they had previously seen trophimus the ephesian in the city with paul and assumed that paul had brought him into the temple the whole city was aroused and the people came running from all directions 
seizing Paul, they dragged him from the temple and immediately the gates were shut. Don't miss that. They drug Paul out of the temple and they closed the gates, basically saying, you're not coming back in. Like, you weren't supposed to be here, we're kicking you out, and we're, we're shutting it down for today, you're not coming back in. While they were trying to kill him, that's sort of new, they had plotted to kill him, they had schemed to kill him, they had set up his death, but now they're actually trying to kill him, okay? While they were trying to kill him, news reached the commander of the Roman troops that the whole city of Jerusalem was in an uproar. Now the Roman troops were conveniently located just outside the temple. Convenient because if the troops could control the temple, they controlled Jerusalem. And if they had a, a thumb on the temple and made sure nothing bad was happening in the temple, then Jerusalem would be, would be secure. There wouldn't be any riots. There wouldn't be anything going on because everything's centered around the temple. So they set up their headquarters just outside the temple. And they actually had a stairway that moved right into the temple courts. So it didn't take long for the word to get to this Roman official. Okay, so verse 32. He at once took some officers and soldiers and ran down into the crowd. Picture him coming down those steps. When the rioters saw that the, that the commander and his soldiers, when they saw them, they stopped beating Paul. Okay, like we don't want to get in trouble. We're going to stop beating Paul. The commander came up and arrested him, Paul, and ordered him to be bound with two chains. Then he asked who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd shouted one thing and some another. And since the commander could not get at the truth because of the uproar, he ordered that Paul be taken into the barracks. When Paul reached the steps, the violence of the mob was so great that he had to be carried by the soldiers. So picture the soldiers are escorting Paul into the barracks where he'll be safe from the crowd. The, the, the situation with the crowd can be, can be lessened. They can talk him down, disperse them. Paul's being escorted away, and the crowd starts going after Paul again. And it, it's so violent. The violence of the mob was so great, he had to be carried by the soldiers. Remember, he had been beaten, so he probably wasn't walking very fast, probably wasn't very strong. They lifted him up. They carried him in to get away from the crowd verse 36 the crowd that followed kept shouting get rid of him now this get rid of him just think you know kill him execute him maybe even think back to jesus on the cross crucify him they wanted to get rid of paul he was too much trouble they didn't like him they wanted to get rid of him verse 37 as the soldiers were about to take paul into the barracks he asked the commander may i say something to you do you, do you speak Greek, he replied? And, and, and think of this as, as, as you're in a, a place, maybe, maybe you're around some people who are dressed in a foreign garb, speaking a foreign language with each, with each other, and you're trying to communicate with them, and one of them turns to you and speaks in English. Your response would be, oh, you speak English. Like, I didn't expect it, because you're dressed like a foreigner, you're talking in a foreign language with each other, I'm in a different place than I normally am. Oh, you speak English. So this is, oh, do you speak Greek? Aren't you the Egyptian who started a revolt and led 4,000 terrorists out into the wilderness some time ago? The commander assumed that such an uproar was the result of this fellow they had been looking for. Okay? He had done it, it doesn't say how long ago, 
but he had, he had revolted, and so it was a terrorist organization that was organized against the Romans, and their Egyptian leader, he thought, this guy has to be the Egyptian leader. So when he spoke Greek, it surprised him. So we'll talk about it later, but note that the, the Romans thought they were arresting someone on their most wanted list, all right? That was what they thought was going to happen. Paul answered, I am a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no ordinary city. Please let me speak to the people. So he says, I'm a Jew. When he says, from Tarsus of Cilicia, a citizen, he's letting them know he's a Roman citizen. Remember, before, he didn't tell them that, and he was beaten by the Romans. Now he's telling them, hey, I'm a citizen. So after receiving the commander's permission, Paul stood on the steps and motioned to the crowd. When they were all silent, he said to them in Aramaic, and then we're in chapter 22, and that's where we'll pick it up next week. So in this narrative, our job is to seek out what we can learn that affects our life. What can we learn from the narrative that's going on here, the story that's being told about Paul? And we're, we're, we're progressing along. We know Paul ends up writing a bunch of letters, which become books of the Bible. Why did he write those letters? Well, because he wound up in prison, and that's how he could continue his ministry. How did he wind up in prison? Well, we're back to there now. He was arrested in Jerusalem, and it's going to just get worse from here. But what can we learn from, from this passage? Well, let's look at our notes, and I want to remind you before we start what a Judaizer is. That, that word there is spelled weirdly. That's, you say that Judaizer. And so a Judaizer taught that in order for a Christian to be truly right with God, he must conform to the Mosaic law. So truly right with God means saved. That's what we'd say. So a Judaizer says that to be really saved, you must conform to the Mosaic law. Circumcision especially was promoted as necessary for salvation. Gentiles had to become Jewish proselytes first, and then they could come to Christ. The doctrine of the Judaizers was a mixture of grace through Christ and works through the keeping of the law. This false doctrine was dealt with in Acts 15 and strongly condemned in the book of Galatians. That's a statement. I copied and pasted that right off of the gotquestions.org website, which I encourage you to use. It's a great website. But I needed a good definition. They provided one, so there it is. Judaizers taught a salvation by works. They're, they're one of the first ones to do this. They, they believed Jesus was the Messiah, but they weren't willing to believe that Judaism was dead, that, that a change had taken place, that no longer were we to sacrifice at the temple, no longer were we to uh, rely on those types of things for our salvation. Now we turn to Christ, the Messiah, and receive salvation free of charge. They weren't willing to let go of that. They also had their national pride of being a Jew, because remember the Jews assumed they were better than everyone else and acted like they were better than everyone else and believed they were better than everyone else because they were God's chosen people. And obviously if God chose them, they were better than everyone else. So they had this attitude in practice that they were better than everyone else. And it was really hard for them to believe that a Gentile could become a Christian without becoming a Jew first. So their doctrine was, if you want to believe in Jesus as the Messiah, that's great. But you need to become a Jew first. Full on Jew. No God fears. You have to be a, become a Jew. Go through the whole process. 
And then after you are a Jew, then you can follow Judaism to Christ. So it was a works-based salvation. Therefore, it was a false doctrine. It was a false gospel. And these people pop up a lot. They, they show up every once in a while. Paul gets, Paul gets um, people that don't like him who are Greeks, people that don't like him who are city officials, people that don't like him who are business people. We've gone through all that. He also gets people from Judaism, even from, from Judaism and believe in the Messiah, he even gets backlash from them. And this is what we're going to hear about today. So in your notes, Acts 21, 21, it says, They have been informed that you teach all the Jews who live among the Gentiles to turn away from Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or live according to their customs. The they here is the Christian Jews. Okay, the Jews who are becoming Christians, these people are telling them, hey, those Gentiles can't be saved unless they become Jews first. You were a Jew and you got saved. They need to become Jews so they can get saved. If you say it loudly and you say it like you mean it and with some conviction, it sounds like a right idea. It sounds decent, right? Hey, the Jewish people were chosen by God. The Messiah was a Jew. And, and Jesus, the Messiah, provides salvation. It's, it's through the Jewish line. We are the chosen people of God. So if Gentiles want to become saved, they have to become Jews first. Sounds logical, except it's not what Jesus taught. And it's not what the apostles have taught. And it's not what Paul has taught. So in your notes, they are the Christian Jews, and they've been informed, and I want you to write by the informed, lied to by Judaizers. They've been lied to by Judaizers. So the Christian Jews have been lied to by the Judaizers. Also, you can include in the they the Jewish people who weren't believers. The Jewish people who are not believers have also been lied to about Paul. Okay? Lie number one, that's the, the next blank there, Jews turn away from Moses. They said Paul teaches the Jews to turn away from Moses. And, and, and we, we've read what Paul's taught, we've heard what Paul's taught. Paul never told the Jews to turn away from Moses. He told the Gentiles they didn't have to subscribe to the Jewish ways other than believing in Jesus Christ as their Messiah, as their Savior. But he never taught to turn away from Moses. So that's line number one. The next line in your notes says, telling them not to circumcise their children. Well, Paul never told the Jews not to circumcise their children. He actually never told the Gentiles not to circumcise their children. He told the Gentiles, you don't have to circumcise your children. It's circumcision of the heart that matters. So they're, they're taking little bits of what he says and building lies around them, but he never said that the Jews don't have to circumcise their children. As a matter of fact, just a few chapters ago, he took Timothy and had him circumcised so that he would be more relatable to the Jewish people they were witnessing to. That's in Acts 16. And then the next line, which is line number three, he told them, he said that he's telling all the Jews not to live according to our customs. Okay, line number three, don't live according to our customs. So the customs would have been celebrating Pentecost, so, uh, observing the, the, the Sabbath, celebrating the Passover, the Feast of Tabernacles, things like this. Now, what Paul did tell the Jews is that they no longer needed to offer sacrifices at the temple because the ultimate sacrifice had been given in Christ. There was no sacrifice looking forward to the Messiah now because the Messiah had come. So he was saying that. 
But he didn't tell them to give up all their customs. He didn't tell them to give up the things that made them Jews. Matter of fact, Paul was still practicing many of these things. We read earlier in chapter 20 and verse in chapter 21 that Paul was in a hurry to get to Jerusalem so he could be there for Pentecost. He was trying to get there so he could take part in a celebration. Paul took part in this, this cleansing ritual that the, these four men were doing, shaved his head and reported to the to the temple the, the date. He was following some of those things. So he never reported any of these. What the what the lies were trying to communicate is, is that Paul has rejected the Jewish nation. He has rejected Judaism. He's rejected the customs and heritage of the nation. It would be like one of us saying to, to another one, hey, you're not even an American anymore. That's the accusation. You're not, you're not being Jewish. You've completely, completely disregarded who we are as a people. And of course, that was a lie. Paul actually regarded the Jews very highly. He said the gospel came first to the Jews, then to the Gentiles. Remember, his practice was to go to the synagogue and preach the gospel to the Jews first and then to the Gentiles. Sometimes the Jews responded, sometimes they didn't. But so these lies are being told, the Judaizers are telling these lies. And we move on in your notes, Acts 21, 23 through 24. We read that part, and I already mentioned this, that the message of the the leadership in Jerusalem, these are the elders now. The apostles are almost all gone. They've gone out to do what Paul's doing. They've gone out to share the gospel in various parts of the world. So these are the elders in Jerusalem. And they say, hey, um, go do some Jewish stuff with some Jewish men in the Jewish temple so that the Jews know you still practice Jewish customs. We talked about this last week. That was a compromise. That's what goes in that blank, a compromise. Now, Doing Jewish things was not the compromise. Shaving his head and, and doing a ritual was not a compromise. Doing it with other Jewish men was not a compromise. Even going to the temple to report how long it's going to be and when they'll be back, that was not a compromise. The compromise was not standing up for the truth that he knew in his heart. The compromise was when the elders said, Hey, everyone's in an uproar. Let's try to appease them. Let's try to make them happy. Let's, let's do this dance. Let's, let's put on this little show and let them conclude that you're okay. And if we can convince them you're okay, then we'll be all right and you won't get killed and you won't be arrested and, and our reputation will be good and we'll get along with everybody. So they had that compromise of, of not stopping and saying, hey, no, uh, Paul is here. Let's ask Paul what he's taught. Let's ask people who Paul has taught Let's find out what he is teaching, and let's find out if this stuff is true. And when they would verify that it's not true, then they could go to the people and say, Hey, Paul is teaching the gospel according to the scriptures. Paul is teaching the gospel according to Jesus Christ. We are in agreement. And, and that would have solved some of it, but they didn't do that. Even if it didn't solve it, that would have been a, a better approach. And so in compromise, I have a little side note in your in your notes there, and I want to read this to you. It says, embracing modern churches and religions that do good things, agree with us politically, are really nice people, and or want to be our friends. Those all are good things, right? We, 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 we like churches that do good things, agree with us politically, uh, agree with us spiritually, are really nice people, and want to be our friends. Those are all good things. 
but embracing them if they also teach us salvation by works or believe in a Jesus not found in Scripture so that we don't make waves or look bad. It is also compromise and perhaps sinful. So what I'm trying to say is we, we, we also have to be willing to have a conversation about the truth. It could be sinful to not have it, depending on the context and the, and the circumstance, where you're at, who you're with. Sometimes the right thing to do is not have a conversation. Sometimes the right thing to do is have a conversation. So it's perhaps sinful. But when, when we say, oh, yeah, they don't quite teach the gospel, but they're really good people, so we're going to go ahead and call them Christians, and, and we're going to associate with them, and we're going to just pretend like everything's great, that's a compromise. It's actually a hateful thing to do because you're implying that they're saved when you don't believe they are. And if you don't think they're saved and you never say anything, you're literally saying to them, it's okay if you go to hell. No problem. Because you're nice. Because you, you produce good families. Because you do good things. And bonus, we vote alike. Right? We, we can't fall into those traps. And, and there are churches and there's organizations and there's people that want to be our friends, want to be called Christians, want to be labeled as a, as a Christian denomination, that just want us to accept them and let them into the fold because we work towards the same goals. Well, we can work together at some level, but we can't call them Christians and can't call them part of the faith. We need, to, we need to make sure we're not doing the same compromise. So there's one of the first lessons we learned from what we've read here. In Acts one twenty-eight, it says they, they make another accusation. They say, this is the man who teaches against our people, our law, and this place. It's, it's lie number four. Let me read this verse to you because it's, it's pretty interesting how they say it. They said, this is the man who teaches everyone everywhere. They're, they're, they're exaggerating. They're trying to make a point. Teaches everyone everywhere against our people and our law and this place. What's the place? The temple. So they are saying, basically, Paul's, Paul's against the Jewish people. He's against our law and he's against the temple. All right? What's the truth? The truth that's in your notes. For Jews, Christianity was the prophesied result of Judaism. The Jews that Paul convinced in the gospel, he convinced them that Jesus was the Messiah promised in the Old Testament. That he showed up and he fulfilled the prophecies of the Messiah. That he was God. He died and rose again and offered them life. It was the natural progression of Judaism to have a Messiah come to the earth and, and be Jesus and be the Savior. So for Jews, that's how it happened. For Gentiles... Forgiveness was available through faith in Jesus. Nobody, neither Jesus, nor Paul, nor the apostles, had ever said you got to become a Jew before you can become a Christian. Okay? The Jews had a pathway through their nation to Jesus. The Gentiles had a pathway through Jesus and through the apostles. But the path was not the same. Gentiles gained forgiveness through faith in Jesus. Number three, Jews were free to be Jews... As long as their faith was in Jesus. They could celebrate Jewish holidays. They could do Jewish things. Now if they showed up at the temple with their, with their lamb and said, I need to sacrifice this so my sins would be forgiven, 
that would not be acceptable for a Christian Jew because the sacrifice had already been made. All right, changed lives were the result of the Holy Spirit's work within. Number four, Gentiles, Gentiles' lives would change into conformity with Jesus' teaching because of the Holy Spirit and their study of the Scriptures. So the Gentiles did study the Scripture. They did gain the Holy Spirit. They did learn to live much like the Jews, but they went on a different path. So, so this isn't in your notes, but listen to this. God showed Jesus, God, excuse me, God showed Jews how to be, how to move from Judaism to Christianity. God showed Gentiles how to move from paganism to Christianity. So the same thing is happening with two very different groups of people. And nowhere, anywhere, did God say the Gentiles had to become Jews. So this is another lie. Interestingly enough, he said he's, he's teaching against our people, our law, and this place. They never said he's teaching against our God, which should have been the bigger accusation. But I think they had heard Paul talk enough times that they knew they weren't going to win that one. So uh, verse 28 and 29, the other side of your notes, they said he has brought Greeks into the temple and defiled this holy place. So there's two assumptions here. Assumption number one is, they, is that Paul brought a Greek into the temple. Okay, and it tells us why they thought that. Assumption number two is the temple is still a holy place. The temple is not a holy place anymore. Remember the, the veil on the Holy of Holies was torn from top to bottom? The Holy of Holies was where God dwelt, where the presence of God dwelt, where they could go in and sacrifice to God Almighty once a year. That's where they were not allowed to go. The priest that went in was probably scared to death. They actually tied a rope around his foot and had bells on his clothes so that if he died from not being righteous or holy enough, they could drag him out. That's where God was. That place was opened up, signifying to everyone God's no longer there. God is now among the people. The Holy Spirit is now living with everyone was the final result of that. It's no longer a holy place. So that assumption was wrong. And then the assumption that Paul brought a Greek into the temple was wrong. Now I do want to say that if Paul had brought a Greek into the temple, then he probably would have been at fault for doing that because he would have intentionally been insulting them. It would have been a slap in the face to their culture. And, and Paul didn't do that. So they were offended because of their assumption. How often are we offended because of something we assume to be true? Oh, I know it's true. I know why you did that. I know what you're thinking. And I'm offended. Well, you know, we're usually wrong. Let's just say that to begin with when we assume things. But let's, let's keep going. In verse 30 and 36, 30 through 36, we have a familiar scene in Paul's life played out. Nothing here is that new. So number one, people joined in the riot, not even knowing why. Remember, they questioned people. What's going on? What's happening? Why are we arresting him? Oh, this is why. Oh, this is why. They couldn't figure out what was going on because the accusations weren't coherent. So people joined in the riot just because there was a riot. They got excited. Oh, yeah, we're defending Judaism. We're not sure why, but we are. That was, that was becoming normal. That's how it usually happened. Number two, Paul was beaten. That's becoming a normal thing for him. He was beaten 
as they tried to kill him. Also something that's becoming normal. They were always trying to kill him. Remember, he had, to, he had to sneak out of town one time. He had to be escorted out of town another time. And then number three, the Romans, or the government, had to step in and save him. This has happened at least twice, three times, depending on how you, how you count. The, the government, the Roman government, surprise, surprise, stepped in to save him. All right, that, this, is, this is becoming normal, which is interesting that God has used the Roman government two or three times now to save Paul. Acts 21.33, still in your notes. I hope you noticed, I didn't stop to, to mention it, but I hope you noticed this verse fulfilled the prophecy of Agabus. So the prophecy of Agabus is fulfilled. It says, the commander came up and arrested him, that was the first part of the prophecy, and ordered him to be bound with two chains. That would be one chain for the feet, one chain for the hands. Exactly what Abigus, or I said that wrong, exactly what he had prophesied. So we have the fulfillment of the prophecy. Acts 21, 37, and 38 should say in your notes. I want you to notice the Romans didn't even know they were saving Paul the Apostle. They thought they were arresting a terrorist revolutionary. God just worked the way it needed to happen so that he'd be saved. And that's interesting. Now, in the time we have left, I want to do this last section, repeated truths that we should not fail to mention, things that we see that we shouldn't fail to mention. This is probably where our lessons are going to come from. Number one, God-haters will lie. God-haters will lie about Christians to silence them either by intimidation and or death. And uh, where, where it says and or death there, write the word violence above that. Because the lies, when they don't work, turn into intimidation. When the intimidation doesn't work, it escalates the violence. And if the violence isn't checked, it ends in death. God-haters will lie. God-haters lie today. This whole abortion thing has come up. And there's lots of lies about what Christians believe and about what the Bible says and, and about Christians' motives. Not by people who have ever asked a Christian what they think or what they believe or what their motives are or what they're willing to do. But simply throwing out these lies because they get press and it makes them sound good. There's a lot of lies about racism. A lot of lies about where it comes from and, 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 and how the church has, has perpetuated it and these kinds of things. There's a lot of lies that are strictly told for politics. Uh, the, the Christians usually vote with so-and-so, so we're going to tell them that so-and-so is something that the Christians won't like. Or, or, or we're going to tell you that this group of people, fanatics and uh, fundamentalists, they, they're the ones. You don't want to be a fanatic fundamentalist, do you? Well, then don't think what they think. This is what they think. So we got those kinds of lies going on. Atheists tell lies all the time. Atheists who, if they really are atheists, if they've really convinced themselves there's no God, have no one to answer to, so who cares what they say? They'll, they'll tell all the good ones about the Christians, what they think about, what they believe. So this, this God-haters lying about Christians is not new, and it was going on here. This is something Paul always deals with. And we're going to get to maybe how we should help think about that. Number two, we are not doing anyone any favors by pretending that their beliefs do not clash with what the Bible actually teaches when it comes to issues of salvation and spirituality. 
There are some things that's okay for us to disagree about. There's some interpretive areas of Scripture we disagree and we can be friends and work with. Not a problem. Matter of fact, we encourage that. Because of, uh, groups of true believers, when we all get to heaven, one of us is going to be wrong. And we're probably both going to be wrong on, on different topics. Okay? But when it comes to salvation, the Bible's pretty clear. You're saved by grace through faith, not works. And that's actually number three. Any salvation that requires works to be saved or to keep being saved is a false gospel. Okay? It's a false gospel. Works are a result of salvation and will increase as you mature in Christ. Works are not a requirement. So any work that's added onto it, even something good, even something great, if you say you're not saved unless, that's a false, false statement, a false religion. Okay, we got to be aware. We got to be careful. Number four, God can use the government. Wow, that's hard to say. Really scary, in fact. Right? God can use the government. And the government would include the school board, the local, local sheriff, uh, the council members, all the way up to the presidency of the United States. Maybe even beyond that to international bodies. God can use the government if he so chooses. And you know what? If you read the end of the Bible, he uses the government an awful lot to accomplish his will. They're more than happy to do what he wants them to do because they think they're accomplishing their own will. God can use the government if he so chooses or anything else in or from the world to accomplish his work and his will. Don't be surprised when God uses things we didn't think were on the table. You know, I tell the story of when Teresa and I came to visit this church for the first time and we drove home and stopped at Panda Express and, we, and we, we had said, oh, what are your greatest fears in maybe coming to this church? And we all said what it was. And then we opened up our fortune cookies. And one by one, it kind of answered our questions. My first thought was, is it okay for God to speak through fortune cookies? Before that day, I would have said no. God can use anything he wants, and we, we can't put God in a box like that. Number five, assumptions are almost as dangerous as lies. Assumptions are almost as dangerous as lies. Sometimes they're probably more dangerous. And they are usually just as wrong. Usually just as wrong. Watch out for those assumptions. Watch out for assigning someone motive. Okay, watch out for that. Number six, God will not allow you to be tested or tempted beyond the point that you cannot successfully get through it. And I reference 1 Corinthians 10, 13, and I want to read that to you because we're going to kind of sum all this up together. It says, no temptation. If you have a, a Bible with notations in there, there's a little A next to the word temptation. You look down at the bottom, you read the thing. It says, the Greek for temptation and tempted can also mean testing and tested. Paul used a word that had two meanings. And I don't think he couldn't think of a better word. I think he did it on purpose. And so we should read this. I'm going to read it. I'm going to fill in that double definition. It says, No test from God or temptation from Satan has, been over, has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not test you or allow Satan to tempt you beyond what you can bear. But when you are tested by God or tempted by Satan... Satan, he will also provide a way out so that you can't endure it. 
often a test and a temptation look the same. When someone cuts you off on the highway, the test from God is to successfully say, wow, you must be in a hurry. I'm going to forgive you. This is not going to bother me. The temptation is to get in front of them and cut them off. Or to be angry and glare at them with your laser eyes or something. The, the temptation and the test happen from the same event. Okay? The temptation and the test can be the same. God's prompting you to, to uh, respond according to His will. That's a test. Satan prompting you to respond according to His will is a temptation. That's why the words come together. God's prompting is the test. Satan's prompting is the temptation. You pass the test or you give in to temptation. So go back to number one. When God-haters lie about you, God says, don't get excited about it. What did you expect them to do? Love them, forgive them, and pray for them. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And then wait for me to take care of it. Satan in his temptation says, well... You need to lie back. You need to fight back. You need to fight fire with fire. You don't take that from them. Go get in their face about it. So you have the, the God prompting you to succeed and Satan prompting you to fail. Okay? When you come face to face with someone who you like, who wants to be your friend, but they believe something other than the gospel, the test of God, the prompting of God is to is to have a loving conversation with them, explaining the gospel, and even saying, you know, I, I'm telling you this because I love you, because if I, if I didn't tell you how to be saved, there's a chance you could go to hell. That's, that's passing the test. Failing, following the temptation, is just to say, you know what, it's not worth the friendship. I don't want to cause any waves. I'm just going to ignore this. You know, God can deal with it some other way. We're just going to pretend like it doesn't exist. That's the temptation. God's prompting, Satan's prompting. When we're faced with a situation where there doesn't seem to be any way out, God's test is to wait on him, to allow God to be God, for God to use things like the government, which at that time was evil. You can make your own assumptions for today. At that time was evil, and, and God used the evil government now more than once to step in where Paul could have listened to Satan and, and could have said, all right, guys, I'm tired of this. Let's go duke it out with them. Let's go confront them. Let's go try to get them in trouble with the Romans. Let's again fight fire with fire. God's solution, Satan's solution. God prompting, Satan's prompting. When you see someone do something or you hear someone say something or you hear something about someone... God's prompting is make sure it's true before you react. Go talk to them. Have a conversation. Hey, someone said this. It doesn't sound like you. Can you? I'm, so I'm just going to ask, did this happen? Or, you know, I saw you at this certain place and, and it looks like this. Can, you know, I don't, I don't want to believe that. Is, is something going on? Or, well, you know, could you just explain or can you help me understand? You, you can approach it in ways that aren't confrontational. Satan says, oh, you know what they're doing. You know what they're thinking. You know what their motive is. And you need to be offended. Right? So, 
we see Paul listening to God and following his prompting instead of listening to Satan and following his prompting in a variety of situations, in a variety of ways. And that's, that's the lesson. When, when I got done reading this, I, my thought immediately went to 1 Corinthians 10, 13, and, and, and then realizing that the testing and the temptation all came from the same set of circumstances. So what do we take home? The main thing I want you to take home is that no matter what others do or Satan does or the situation we find ourselves in, there is a godly way to respond and there is a worldly way to respond. One prompted by God, one prompted by Satan. And I want to remind you that there is no test or temptation that has overtaken you except which is common to mankind. It's not new. Okay, you're not the only one. And God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tested or tempted beyond what you can bear. God will never put you in a test you can't pass. And he'll never allow Satan to tempt you in a way you can't overcome. It says, but when you are tempted or tested, when they do come, God will also provide a way out. He will provide you a way to escape so that you can endure it. Sometimes in the test, it means getting through Getting to the end, God simply provides a, a pathway forward. Sometimes it means turning and running away. God will always provide a way out. So if you're being lied about, if people are making assumptions about you, if you're dealing with people who claim to be Christians, they use the word spiritual or something like that, but they're not, God provides the, the conversation. God, God steps in in all these ways and he helps. And, and I want you to be thinking in those terms, and I want you to be realizing those circumstances. We have the same God working on our behalf as Paul had working on him, his behalf. Don't, don't think that, oh, Paul was so great and so special that God did things for him he doesn't do for other people. God did these things for Paul and through Paul so that we could also see what God will do through us and for us. And we have this great promise that we need to rely on and we need to embrace. And, and that's, that's what I have for you for today. So I'm going to pray and I'm going to ask the Holy Spirit to let that sink in. Father, thank you for being with us. Thank you for your teaching. Thank you from your, for your promise from 1 Corinthians. Thank you how that we see that promise being fulfilled in Acts. Thank you that we can have confidence that you are, are making that promise to us as well. And we will also see it fulfilled in our lives. So I ask that you give us the faith to step forward according to your prompting and the strength to resist Satan's prompting so that we can also experience the good things that you have for us. Seeing people saved, seeing lives changed, seeing believers mature around us, getting to be a part of that, and, and so many other things as well. Thank you for the message today. I pray that it will sink in, in our hearts. Holy Spirit, use it to change us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.